Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, publicans? What the fuckocrats? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckeristas? All right, okay, well, what's happening? You know, there's some days where I think, like, am I still doing that? It's sort of an evolution of a thing I used to do back in the day on the radio. Keeps going. Keeps going, keeps hold. You know, the, you, you get into these patterns, you take these forms, you get into these habits, they become a signature thing. And then one day you hear yourself doing it and you're like, wow, I'm still doing that. Am I a recording device? Well, at, according to William Burroughs, yes, that's what the brain is. Just a uh, fairly complicated, but primitive, but highly, highly sophisticated uh, recording device. Series of repetitions that comforts us. Anyway, let's not get too deep or down some sort of rabbit hole right out of the gate here. How's it going? Uh, this is um, being recorded a little ahead of time because uh, we're kind of taking a, taking some time. I'm taking a little time, a little downtime, get a little, a little uh, relaxation in. My uh, business partner and producer, Brendan's taking a little downtime. So we put these in the can a little bit ahead like, I didn't do this last night is what I'm saying. And I don't know why I'm being transparent necessarily, but I, I feel like I owe it to you for you to know that uh, if this just posts and it's all that's left on the burning landscape are random speakers with my voice coming out of them, I should have said something a little more powerful. I should have said something a little more relevant. But what the fuck would be relevant at that moment? Just a sparse, smoldering landscape with some you know, scattered speakers here and there from cars and maybe a, a, you know, half of a computer speaker system, just me rambling. That's what it feels like in my brain some days. Today on the show, uh, David Remnick. David Remnick is here. I went to New York and I was uh, hanging out and I went over to the New Yorker offices and I interviewed uh, David Remnick, who is the editor of the New Yorker. He's also the host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. Uh, very smart guy, great writer, uh, broad-based uh, intellectual and thinker. Has written some great stuff about this, the current administration. And also is at the helm of a very important publication. A very, it's, it, the New Yorker is like, a, it's not a holdout because it stays current, but it is a, 
a sort of an intellectual Alamo in a way that there's a there's something about the themes and content of the New Yorker magazine that represents what culture should be. And and I believe this to be true. Whether you read it or not, I, I don't know. But you know, within every New Yorker, there's poetry, there's humor, there's fiction, there's, uh, there's cartoons, there's cutting-edge journalism, there's good journalism, there's international stories, there's stories about art, theater, film, painting, sculpture, dance. There's, uh, it's just all-encompassing intellectually and culturally of the things that that should be seen as important because they are important they are our lifeline there it's a it's almost like a portal to to where we need to stay and where we're drifting from that there's something about involving and including all those different disciplines journalism art fiction all the stuff that keeps the uh, the american cultural spirit Moving forward, you can't let that shit drift. I mean, we're just in idiocracy. We just kind of are just uh, sitting around, jerking off to varying various degrees of porn, completely subdued by binge-watching garbage, entranced into a paralysis of eating and just taking in stimulus, tweeting, checking our texts, you got to let it breathe. You got to go out and see the world and know that other people are thinking and doing and creating and, and embracing things that aren't, you know, in your immediate periphery. Oh, there's a text from a guy. Oh, I got to. Oh, shit. I'm going to fucking tweet that thing. Oh, did I? Do I have all episodes of this? I, it's just we've got to keep the world big. The cultural world has to be big has to be embracing, has to be diverse, has to engage the human spirit at this juncture in history. The final quarter, perhaps. God damn it. God damn it. Look, I'm guilty of not necessarily being as... It's not a matter of not open-minded. I just don't have the time to maintain an open mind. Like, I, I don't know. I can't remember the last time I actually made it through an entire issue of The New Yorker. But I'm happy it's there. It's the only thing I think. It's one of the only publications that my uh, my uh, girlfriend, Sarah Kane, the painter, Sarah Kane, the abstract painter, she reads it and tells me what's up. Then I go read it. It's important. It's really important. You can condescend this stuff or you can dismiss it. But if you if you throw away or push aside what the New Yorker represents in its context, where, where it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a very simple and dark, but probably uh, completely engulfing and uh, shallowly satisfying culture we live in. That was that just a roundabout way uh, of me saying that I don't see enough theater. I think it might be. I got an email from somebody yelling at me about that. Got to stay on the pulse. Got to stay informed. Got to stay awake. Got to enjoy life and and do new things. Is that the point I'm trying to make on every, every fucking episode of this show? Stay open. Stay interested. Engage. 
I do, but sometimes I, I, I admit, you know, I got, I've got a context myself. I got a wheelhouse. I've got things I'm interested in. I should, I should throw some more wood on the fire. But I did get this, and I, I think it's important that I read it. Okay, subject line, dude, eyelid twitching. Yeah, that's a that that grabbed me. Hey, Megan, the playwright in Los Angeles here. I love you and WTF and Glow is beautiful, badass and cathartic and you knocked it out of the park with your performance in that. But if I hear one more time on your podcast when you interview playwrights who also write for TV from you or them that there is no theater in Los Angeles, I'm going to implode from the most visceral, primitive, Medea-like of rages. I loved your most recent of podcasts with the glow writers who are also playwrights, but my left eye started to twitch from anger for them or for you to say that it's difficult to see theater in LA or that there's no theater scene here or whatever elitist New York slant they harbor against the West coast is just completely wrong. Theater in LA is fucking vibrant. Theater here is brave, eccentric, experimental, weird as shit. The good weird, expansive, provocative, intellectually thrilling, and completely itself. A unique, weird, mystical, desert baby dreaming slash tripping by the Pacific Ocean. Fucking arty shit up downtown and getting spoken word tacos in Boyle Heights. There are more black box theaters here than in New York City, for Christ's sake. She's worked up. Yes, there are duds and a lot of crap, but the unabashed will to experiment and dream is so palpable here. It's vastly sexually exciting. And there's rarely any ego or elitist stuff attached. The Chicano theater scene is of legendary stuff, and L.A. has the largest and most prominent slash notable Native American and Asian theater companies in the country. Native Voices at the Autry at Griffith Park, close to you in Highland Park, and East-West Players in Little Tokyo. Also, one of the most exciting theater companies here is Circle X, and they are at Atwater Village Theater, another Highland Park neighbor. Go see some L.A. theater, Mr. Marin, ASAP! And obviously, I don't know your GF at all, but if she's a contemporary abstract artist, then she might dig the theater slash performances at Red Cat, an experimental theater and performance space attached to the Disney Hall downtown. They do some awesome and crazy shit there. Go! Twitching. Megan. Okay, I think I get your point. I think what you're saying is that I should get out of my little bubble and go see some theater if I'm really interested in seeing theater. You know, it's just finding time to to not sp- sit and spin in my little world. Everyone, you know, there's there's little bubbles, then there's a bigger bubbles, and then there's even bigger bubbles than that. I guess the point of this is, as I head into the David Remnick interview, I, I want to, uh, I can't overstate the... Uh, the importance of the journalism he's been doing and the crew at the New Yorker have been doing in response to this administration, which remains important. Uh, got to be some checks. There's got to be some checks against the bubble time. <laughs> but also just the New Yorker in general. I always, you know, I pick it up and it makes me realize that there is a, a world out there, man. And it always has. You know, even if I've never been able to read an entire uh, copy of the New Yorker, cover to cover i've tried but just knowing it's all happening it's all there and there is that context of of what uh you know just you know progressive not in a political sense but just evolution evolution 
evolutionary culture, evolutionary international arts, literature, news, uh, humor, all of it. I'm glad it's out there, man. I'm glad it's out there. And I'm, and I'm going to go right now and, and uh, after I talk to, uh, to David Remnick and engage in some stuff that I've never engaged in before. Not sure what that is, but that can be food, right? Food counts. Anyways, this is me in New York talking to David Remnick. He's the, uh, again, the editor of The New Yorker and the host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. You can go to newyorker.com for all things David Remnick and The New Yorker. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts worker so you talked to president obama about me the people around him always thought that it was a terrible idea for Obama just to talk to the traditional media. Right. You know, oh, you Times got the inside the scoop. Post. Oh, yeah, You yeah, did yeah, some yeah. research for me. Well, Is this in the book? No, no we used your book. We used your book as a source. Oh, well, that's nice. My, uh, my producer, did Brendan you, McDonald, did. Did you credit the thing? No, what do you mean? Credit the thing in a conversation? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to come up with this if it weren't <laughs> no. for David Remnick's amazing book. Well, I'm glad you're saying it now. Yeah. And they were obsessed with this. And so the first thing, you know, Huffington Post yeah. and sort of the, you know, Web 1.0 and 2.0 and all the rest. And then they got into podcast land. Yeah. And they, the were, staff did. they were really proud of themselves that, yeah, that they did. That they, did. That they were able to land him on WTF. They were like, <laughs> man, we didn't think Mark would still go for it. Exactly. The president. We're not booking come- him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you listen to the podcast we did after that one, there, there was some problems, but it was never about whether or not we would book him. But it didn't fit my schedule quite right. Well, was, yeah, it should. But uh, but we made it work. Exactly. Good. But, I'm glad you did. But wait, so did, did you talk to him about me? I said I was, I, you know, I was glad I could, you, you could fit me in after Mark Maron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what did he say? He just did one of those giant Obama smiles, you know, yeah, 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 the, yeah. the earlobe and ends at the other earlobe. It's pretty wild to have him over your house. Has he ever been to your house? He uh, has not, <laughs> strangely, or my garage. <laughs> it, was a, it was quite a day. So how old are you? Oh, we have to start with the hardest question of all. Well, I'm just curious because I, I know we're close in age, but I know that the— that, I'm older, Mark. I'm but 58. not much. So you're 58, so that means you were born— And in, I grew up about 15 minutes, 20 minutes from you. From from where my folks are from. You're from like Pompton Lakes. My mother's from Pompton Lakes. My grandmother lived in Pompton Lakes. My father's from Jersey City. 
So I was actually born in Jersey City. I lived in Wayne for the first six years of my life. I wouldn't say my that I was from there. My best friend lived in Wayne. My grandfather owned a, uh, 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 a, a appliance store in Haskell. Very Do you know nice. that the Haskell Butler Pompton Lakes Triangle? <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> it's, it's known as the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> the, of New Jersey. The, the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> of New Jersey, Appalachia. <laughs> you get <laughs> d- disappeared. Yeah, it's quite. A, it was quite a, a place. <laughs> but yeah, I'm a Jersey guy. But I was just trying to figure out, you know, when you were coming up, uh, growing up. What you're, I guess, you're officially a boomer. Really, I, I'm not quite, because I'm 53, I, I 63. When does that end? I don't know. I, and it gets but, thrown in your face all the time. It's some, some terrible thing. I grew up in a town called Hillsdale, and the, and the high school was called Pascack Valley. And I was the editor of the school newspaper, the only time I was an editor before being made the editor of The New Yorker. And the, the name of the paper was called The Smoke Signal. Yeah. Because we were the Pascack Valley Indians. Oh, so a little inappropriate. That almost. would have gotten Bill yeah, Maher thrown was... off the air. But Bill Maher, he grew up. <laughs> About five minutes away, he went to Pascack Hills High School. Was he? A, he was the comedian. He was. He was always a little older than I am, and he was always getting into trouble at things like you know talent shows. I was in a band that played in somebody's. Basement. What do you play? I, I play guitar. And, really? And um, and then we would take a break and play in Bill Maher's driveway. And yeah. Bill Maher's, by the standards of my growing up, Bill Maher's father was famous. Sure, he was a radio guy. He right? was a radio news guy. guy. He did the news. Yeah. So you, so you knew of his father. Did you listen to his father? You would have thought his father was Frank Sinatra. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because yeah. yeah. the local, like, local oh, celebrity. It was huge. Oh. All right, so you were in a band. This is good information for me. Uh, you want to form one? Yeah, I can. I play pretty good. Do you still play? Yeah. Where do you find time to play? It seems like you're doing 900 things. You're, it's the only thing I do that's not about reading and writing. Me too. That's it's it. Fr- it's so relaxing. What do you play? I play guitar. Yeah. Wait, I play electric it's, guitar it's, it's in a, my garage. It's a horrible cliche, isn't it? The, no. middle, the middle-aged man with his electric well, I guitar. I know, but I, it's not, I'm not out there trying to make records or I'm playing I'm taking lessons every Sunday. I take lessons from this, this great guy. And, um, so and you're, you're re-engaged. And I, you're, you're, like, you're, I, you're yeah. re-engaged. So I did that once. And I, apparently you can get better. You can. Yeah. I've gotten so much better in the last five <laughs> years. Uh, but I'm primarily primarily blues Country, like, I, you know, that's my wheelhouse. Right. But I'm, I'm getting better at certain licks. I have Jimmy Vivino from uh, Conan's band. He shows me stuff whenever I do Conan. Jimmy, like, you, you take lessons from him? Well, I, every time I, we've got this pattern where uh, this uh, thing, that ritual, where I do the Conan show, he always right. puts a guitar in my dressing room, one, a great guitar, so I can, you know, noodle around while I'm waiting. De- I can't steal it. Steal but, it. I, well, I've got hooked up. I got hooked up with Gibson. I've, I've gotten a few free guitars. What are oh, you playing? What are you oh, playing? Oh, that's not fair. What are you playing? I can't take free what stuff. Why not? I'm a journalist. I can't take free shit. That's, well, you think that that's going go to protect, protect go to Gibson? I'm going to go to journalism jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> he can't comment on the Gibson what controversy, <laughs> whether they're using real old wood or this is new wood. What my, do you play? My best, my favorite guitar that I've got lately. Remember on the rooftop concert the Beatles play, yeah. and George is kind of wearing this big giant coat, and he's playing a, um, a Fender Telecaster. Is he? But it's made of one piece of kind of one piece of mahogany. It's a kind of brown yeah. and black Telecaster. It's a right. fantastic Ooh, guitar, nice. and I'd never seen it. And I walked into, I guess it was the Guitar Center, which is a kind of sure. chain where, yeah. you, where you normally should not, you shouldn't buy guitars in chains if you if you really want to make the cool decision. Well, it's hit or miss, you know. You might find a good one. And I just picked this thing up. It was yeah. just heaven. Yeah, you don't. I mean, sometimes you get a good guitar at Guitar Center. I mean, they have them. It's just a little hit or miss. But these these poor teachers, 
you know, there's it's, no so more. It's heavy, more. right? Mahogany. It is. One, it, it is a, as we say in New Jersey, a gazunta guitar. It's, yeah. It, 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 it's is not, that what they say? It's not <laughs> as heavy as a Les Paul. <laughs> so you're locked in with other Jewish guitar players <laughs> of your generation, eating smoked fish <laughs> and worshiping one god. Yeah, of course. Not two, my one friend. One god. Just the one. Which guitar god would that be? Ah, Jimmy. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, He's the one. He played a Strat, though. How do you have to end up I've with? I've got a one of those too. Of course you do. Five I, position I, switch. I, not, Bought a car. I'm married to the same woman for what, 30 years. You're like years. saying the same thing I say. I got a Camry. <laughs> the biggest thing I bought was this uh, Macintosh amplifier for my uh, records. Mark, I've got worse than a Camry. What? I got a fucking minivan. Really? Yeah. Well, you got kids, right? It's, it's yeah, but You're doing still. what you have to do. I think what I'm going to do is in, endorse a Fender Stratocaster for president for the New Yorker. And then yeah. i get one for free. Sure. Yeah, I, I, you can That'll work it out. Why don't you just create a back channel? <laughs> <laughs> to, to Fender, <laughs> and you know, don't tell anybody. That's all you got to do. It's gonna These, work. The back channel. No Absolutely. one's gonna. No one's gonna know. And if they do, say it wasn't for me, and I, it was always supposed to be that way. But I, I have to say, I take lessons on Sunday. Uh-huh. It is an absolute. I just gift from the gods that I'm doing something that's not work. And this this wonderful guy, Robert Ankner, is his name. He the problem with with musicians now is that there's not that much work anymore. There used to be a whole flock of studio musicians and now, you know, Apple laptops are taking that over. And so unless you're the one or two top guys, and in that world, it's it's a lot of guys, you're, you're, you're teaching. And usually what you're teaching, at least maybe in this neighborhood, is either middle-aged guys like me, and there's a lot of dead fans, a lot of guys wanting to learn Jerry? The Mixolydian scale and Jerry leads. The Mixolydian, yeah. Someone just hit me with the Mixolydian. Or you're teaching 12-year-old, usually girls, to, to play Taylor Swift songs, and that's it. But and that's what drives the entire— Robert's a terrific player. Yeah. But that drives the entire guitar industry, is people with dreams. You bet. And people—like, you know, they could never make it if it was just people who were professional players. And, and Mark, I have no idea what kind of player you are, but these guitars that I have are, like, too much guitar for me. Yeah, I feel the same way. That's why I don't buy them. Like, I'm happy to get them for free, and I don't know what to do with some of them. And, like, I gave—I had an Epiphone that was given to me, and I gave it to my cousin. Right. By the way, an Epiphone, perfectly good for the Beatles. Sure. But not up to your collection. Right. Well, I think think Epiphone (laughs) was different then. I think, were they they always a subsidiary of Gibson? It was the junior. It was, like, the lesser Gibson. And, yeah, and the the Beatles also played those Rickenbackers. And Guilds and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. They were awfully good band, I thought. They were pretty good. They hold up, you know, and (laughs) no one thought they would. You know, the best thing they did was stop. I think <laughs> it's always good when they stop for whatever reason. Hopefully they're not dying, but yeah. even that turns yeah. out well for some people. Yeah. Well, the reason I was asking your age is just to sort of get a time frame of what was, uh, you know, pummeling your brain as a, as a child, because I have vague memories, you know, given what we're going through now, I have very vague memories of Watergate, right? So I'm not even 10. Oh, right? I have when good it, memories of it. Right. Cause you're a little more conscious. Yeah. I don't know what, what was your family like? Were they political? They were political ish yeah. and but look the first thing that pummeled my brain other than you know the tribal memories is from a cultural political point of view i wanted in on what was happening and i was listening to the radio all the time as a little little kid was in this quiet boring eh, town in new jersey yeah. no insult to it and i was riding in some van and some kid was i, I he couldn't he could talking about a new album called The Best of 66. So uh-huh. I was seven years old or something like that. And I go out. It's the first album I ever bought yeah. for, for like $1.50 at Corvettes. 
Corvettes. And it had on all kinds of things. You know, it had the birds and Paul Revere and the Raiders and some R&B. And then it had this thing, this song called I Want You by Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah? And I, I didn't understand this. I was seven years old. But everything in my mental universe, everything in my mental universe for the next years to come yeah. bloomed out of that. Yeah. Anything that I liked that was worth anything. Huh. Came from that. Yeah. He'd mention, you know, I'd be 14 years old. And he'd mention Ezra Pound. I don't know what that Ezra Pound. Yeah, go try and I'd it. go to some used bookstore and buy a book. And, yeah. and it was like the birth, not of knowledge, but of pretension. I, right. But pretension. But there is that attempt. It's a good thing. Yeah. What was it? The Cantos? Uh, you know, was that Ezra Pound? Which I couldn't understand. To this, this day, I don't understand. No one understands Most it. of it. I don't know that, you know, a lot of it was beyond but, Pound's understanding. But I, I just, it awaken me. He'd mention Allen Ginsberg, and so I'd buy Got those it. little black and white, you know, But you could understand books. that. You'd get Scottish. Way more. You could, you know, way more. It's culturally exactly. identifiable. My father uh, saw, my father saw Allen Ginsberg's book, and he said, Allen Ginsberg. I went to school with Allen Ginsberg. My father grew up in Patterson. <laughs> so, you know, all these kinds of, that you, kid. you need some hub of your mental world. And for some people, you know, in a different century, it's, you know, religion or, um, I don't know what, but for me it was that. But but it's interesting though. You say pretension, but that's you're kind of uh, you're you're retrofitting that. The the truth is is that right. is is that these people, if you're if you're prone to that type of intellectual curiosity, which at that time was a, a kind of explosion. There was a hippie explosion. That's right. You know, exploring you know poetry, the beatniks. You know, Dylan was doing a folk thing, and you got you know you have this whole sort of cultural revolution of 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 creative ideas and it made this it made it available to me right and it, it's almost mystical though these things like someone mentions it someone like dylan mentions ezra pound of course you're gonna go by ezra pound and then you want the thing to come to life and you feel like an idiot for not being able to grasp any of it but 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 you know the answers are in there yeah, but but it was you, you didn't have to feel like you understood everything because you could feel cool yeah cool, okay cool is a substitute in some ways for mastery yeah. Right. So sure. you could feel cool because you grew your hair long, and you you know you're in in a way you're being. So you were a long haired fourteen year old. Yeah, I had this stand. I I looked like you know the white sly stone. Sure. Do you have big Jufro? <laughs> Gigantic. Do you have elder brothers? I have a younger brother. Oh, younger brother. So it was on you to guide him. How'd you do? Well, he became a doctor who <laughs> likes who, who who likes the out of doors. But when did things start to sort of? Uh, intellectually consolidate for you in, you know, in your brain? Like what, you know, at what point did you decide to, to study, you know, writing or what, how did it go? Well, in, in all seriousness, I, this didn't feel like anything intellectual. It felt in the beginning and that's why it took, in other words, it, it wasn't from school. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't somebody, um, declaiming the romantics or something like that. It it was part of what the church of what was happening then. Right. And so I entered it in that way. And so by the time I actually started really learning stuff. Which was when? Really, re- who, who knows? It's like, it's, it's like an instinct. High school? There's no, yeah. Yeah. And you had people to talk about things with. And there were, it wasn't a particularly great high school, but there were a few teachers and a few kids that you could um, awaken with. Yeah, you need one or two. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. all. Yeah. That's all. And 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 that was that was a great blessing. But you were on the side of like, you know, things aren't what we think. 
you know, there's some, you know, bad shit going on. Like the, the country was in turmoil, right? You know, come 72, 69 through 72. It was, it was. But remember, I was young enough so that my contemporaries were not going to Vietnam. Right. I certainly had no contemporaries getting on buses and going to Mississippi and right. teaching voting rights or, 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 or what have you. So there was, a, is a, there was a real distance from this that I wanted to bridge both in time and geography. Just a little younger. You were a little yeah. younger. Yeah. So By the time I got to college, the, <laughs> I remember my freshman year of college, the biggest album, because rock and roll went backwards or down a, down a bad chute for a yeah. little while, the biggest album my freshman year was Frampton Comes Alive. So thank God there was there were other things that started to happen. Like what was that? Uh, like seventy seven? Seventy seven. Yeah. No Frampton. Sure. Yeah, I remember that tour. Yeah. Do you feel like I do? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't either. <laughs> I really. Well, I didn't know what that tube was in his mouth, and, and he's a the terrific guitar box. player. Yeah, but, he's yeah, all right. Yeah, but yeah. So all right. So that's it. So that 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 answers my question. So you know, I. I romanticized the '60s and you know, and the '50s and and that and I missed it, but you missed it too, really. Yeah, I yeah, because my real coming alive was in the '70s, right? Which was just debauchery, not, leading into not it. for me, my friend. But like the '70s, like <laughs> when all music was appropriated, and, and I didn't, they, I didn't even go near drugs. Certainly, when I was in high school, I, I it just it it seemed scary, scary and stupid at the same time. Yeah, why and, is that? Did your parents were like, you know, you do what you want to do, but it's not good. I was a good boy. Right, I, right. I think to some just degree. out of fear. And then when I got to college, I just smoked a whole lot of dope for a period of time and until it got boring. And then that was Isn't that where you call it dope still? It's not weed, weed to you. Weed, pot. <laughs> smoked a lot of dope. Ganja. I, yeah, it was yeah. just, it, it just, it was fine. And, sure. But it was just, but I smoked it in a kind of disciplined way. I would, <laughs> my oh, really? freshman year, yeah. You had a I'd box? Work, I'd work yeah. until midnight. Yeah. Smoke some weed, yeah. get a sandwich, and fall asleep. It just seems sure. a little joyless. And yeah, stupid. the sandwich at twelve thirty at night in college it, every night. You paid for that. Not really. I think at that age you can still you could eat a styrofoam box and it wouldn't. Yeah, I, it wouldn't affect you. I just remember doing it like you know, you know, having that sub place across <laughs> the street at twelve thirty. Like time to eat a full sandwich, yeah. full tuna melt it's, uh, it's just, with pickles. Yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> chips, whatever you need. So yeah. you went to Princeton. I did, which is a, a, a much fancier version of New Jersey. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, it was and it was academically it was heaven. Yeah, heaven. Yeah, and and that's were when you I engaged? To, totally, you were. I hated the social side of it. I, I don't know if you know anything about Princeton. Had these eating clubs, and in those days, it was incredibly um, undiverse. Called. Mm-hmm. Um, foreign students meant that you were the son or daughter of a, you know, dictatorship somewhere around the world. Whereas today, you you go to the same sure. place and for all its faults, a foreign student means the Romanian math champion. Uh, right. You know, but back Bucharest. then it was still like all those Ivy League schools were servicing, you know. Uh, yeah, Marcos's kids. Uh, was trail, trail, aristocracies around yeah, the world. trailed by three security agents. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And dressed very flashy. Yeah, and going to New York all the time, which right. seems an impossibly glamorous thing to do. But uh, but academically, I I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. And the other thing I did in school was I started working as a – it sounds preposterous, but as a professional journalist, I started as a stringer for all kinds of newspapers in the area in Philly and New York and Jersey. It was part of this club. So I would write – So for my audience, tell me what a stringer is. Oh, so you're – 
Princeton, New Jersey is not a place where you need a full-time correspondent if you're the New Brunswick Home News or the Newark Star-Ledger or the Philadelphia Inquirer or whatever. Really? They don't have international correspondents? <laughs> <laughs> but, they, but once in a while, somebody would drop dead that they need an obituary about right. it or a news sure. thing could happen or a feature thing could be contrived or whatever. And I, as a member of this club, which was competitive to get into, I'd write the piece in question and then, you know, some weeks later I'd get a check for 50 bucks. Oh, okay. So that's how you started doing that. I did. And, you know, I grew up in a house. I wanted to be a writer from very early What's on. your old man do? My, my father was, um, who's, who's gone, unfortunately, was a dentist. Very, had a very small practice. Yeah. Very middle class. Uh-huh. And when he was younger than I am, he got Parkinson's. And so he really lost everything. And my mother, who's still alive and in her, her 80s, has multiple sclerosis since I'm six years old. So I... I had this powerful sense that of responsibility that I knew I would have to make a living right away and help them help them help yeah the, I, there wasn't going to be a period where I was going to finish school and you know go into debt and go to and Europe write the, and go to Europe find and yourself write, write, find yeah yeah and so I I it, it, in a way journalism was a kind of um, compromise. Mm-hmm. There would be there'd be writing, and then there would be a check at the end of the week. I'd but, make a living, and also, and it being, was exciting. It was a way right, to see in, the world, engaged in 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 life. Yeah. So, did you study journalism? Then? No, no, that no, no. Was this? Can I be honest with you? I don't. Please. I, people have gone to journalism schools. I go to visit them, and I speak there once in a while. But it wasn't for me. I wanted to learn something about books. I wanted to study literature. I wanted to study history. I wanted to travel some if I could. Um, I quit school in the middle, and I um, <laughs> I told my parents I was – I'd done miserably in Russian, yeah. ironically. But you took it. I took it, and I got a C-plus and a D. Yeah. Does your, are you, but, are you but, from Russian? Yeah, Russian-Jewish. Yeah. But nobody spoke Russian. Right. You know, these, the, those, the elders spoke Yiddish. Right. And, and I decided to take off from school. And I told my parents I, I was going to study at the Allianz Francaise. They didn't know what that was. I barely knew what it was. And instead, I went to Paris and I schlepped this guitar with me. A so you did go to Europe to find I yourself. I did, but I, I worked. Every day, I would be a busker from about 10 in the morning till about 1.30 in the afternoon. And I'd make enough to pay my hotel, my movie tickets, whatever I was going to drink that night. Whatever I needed. So you, you that's a, a romantic idea to go there in France. It what was were you ridiculous. singing Bob Dylan songs? Neil Young, you know, in the Otis train? Redding. Oh, yeah. on, not only in the train station, but in the damn train because that's how you would do better. Because uh-huh. you were, in other words, to make people go away from you, not yeah. in appreciation for what you're doing, but to make you go away. Yeah, they pay give you, you 10 francs. Yeah. There was a guy in the New York subways that used to play saxophone terribly. Like, he'd get on and you'd pay him to stop. It, it was – and I saw him twice. It was the greatest racket in the world. Got, late, lately, I've though, run across some terrific musicians. There was a guy in the – we're here at One World Trade Center, which – right where the trade towers used to be. And in, this, in the station nearby, there was, there's a guy that plays – Nothing but Ornette Coleman. Yeah. It's really hard. It's tricky. Really yeah. hard. Yeah. And he's hard terrific. to play and hard to get. He's he's terrific. Yeah. So you go and you're in France. Do you speak French? Uh, petit peu, a little bit. So how long did you do this for? Six before? months. And the other six months, I interviewed American poets like we're doing now. Uh huh. 
And then I came back to school and I did much better, much, much Which better. Which poets? Who did I interview? Yeah. Allen Ginsberg and Philip Levine, Denise Levertov, Amiri Baraka. Why poets? I wrote poetry. I read poetry. It was, that was the center of what I was I, I did some of that myself. Yeah. What, do, what do you think was about that? What do you think, you know, because I, I was thinking about this recently, you know, poetry still has a place in, you know, the idea of, of political uh, empowerment that, that you know, in that other wasn't, con- it wasn't about politics. No, though. but you know, the, you hear that the poets like in, in certain I, revolutions. I do, and- but I, I, I thought, you know, if I have, a, you know, a hero in poetry or, or somebody that I revere enormously, it's Joseph Brodsky, Russian born yeah, poet sure. who, um, was forced out of the country, um, when he was about in his, in his thirties. Yeah. And the way he saw poetry was not as about message or, mm-hmm. or even politics. Obviously, these poems were about something, but they were – their greatest subject was language itself. Right. And that poets were the greatest servants to and developers of the greatest of all human inventions, language. And that interested me. It still does. And I you know, work at a magazine where we still publish poetry. Yeah. It, it, one of the few. And you have, and New York has been doing it forever. There's like well, at least what two poems in every issue. That's right. Yeah, and but like I agree with you. I, I think when you write poetry, there's that moment when you work a line or two, and you just keep working at it. And do you it, still yeah. write? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I do. I, I generally write more poetry, you know, stylistically than I do jokes or anything else. But I would think, there? Mark, that 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 not that they're the same thing, but they say, but poetry and jokes have a similar sense of. Economy. Yeah. If you're beholden to jokes, I tend to be a lot more conversational in my right. stand-up. But like when I when I write things, I've I've written poems. I, I don't know really what to do with them, but there is a, a, a rush to, you know, an image coming from wherever it comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and a lot of times they aren't worked too hard initially, but you just sort of write something out and you start to refine that thing, and the image kind of is does something other than what it just does on the page, mm-hmm. which is what poetry should do. And you can't really define what it does, and it kind of uh, it transcends. Uh, that's the beauty mm-hmm. of that thing. And, and I get off on that, you know, if I can find one. Well, I, if I, there are lots of things to regret in this life, but one of them is that, um, unfortunately, I think mostly contemporary poetry anyway is read by people who are in the contemporary poetry world. Oh, yeah, everything's and what, very... what, 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 what gives me joy about what The New Yorker does with poetry is that you're bringing two poems a week, which are brought to you not only by the, the, the poets themselves, but also a poetry editor. We have now Paul Muldoon, who's a great Irish-born poet who lives here. And come the fall, another poetry editor named Kevin Young, who's at the Schomburg Library. But what you're doing is you're bringing those poems to an audience that doesn't necessarily write poems or live by poetry in any serious way other than the New Yorker sometimes. They're not buying poetry books. I mean, a, sure. a, a popular book of poetry, if it sells a few thousand, it's, it's a lot. Right. It's a lot. And I suspect a lot of those sales are to libraries. And to right. College other, classes. Other poets. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if I can – the New Yorker is a weird invention. It's, a, it's an incredible – and it's not my invention – it's something that was invented more than 90 years ago by Harold Ross, and in it are it's, – it's just a weird thing. The cover has no photographs. Mm-hmm. That makes us different from everybody right away. Always drawn? Always art? Always. Yeah. And, and in the midst of a 10,000-word political piece or, or a piece of reporting from Africa or something, there are gag cartoons sprinkled in, and no one thinks twice about this anymore. There are poems. There's fiction. Now, 
I would bet that the vast majority of our readers, or, or let's say this, a majority of our readers don't necessarily read the fiction, but for the people who do, which is, a, I think, a very healthy minority, or maybe it is a majority, I don't know, it means the world to them. So it's a, it's a very strange thing that's coming at you every week and now online every day. Yeah, I, and you guys are doing great work. But getting up to that point where you take this job to edit mm-hmm. The New Yorker, it's funny because I, I saw a play. I, I, at different points in my life before the Internet, I had subscribed to The New Yorker. And, and just the guilt of them stacking up. That's what we're in business to do. We want to make you feel horrible. No, but it, there, there was a time when you were dealing with hard copies. What, they'd come every, what, two weeks? Every week, Every week. Every week. So, like, every week, it's like I didn't get through the fiction, and then I was like, I'm going to get to that, and then there was another Mark, one on I'm, top of it, and then I'm, there was Mark, another me, one on top me, of it. Let me, let, it's not like I'm hearing this the first time. Let me let you in on a secret. I don't have to read everything? The only person <laughs> who reads all of it every week more than once yeah. is me. I get paid to do that. <laughs> I know in my heart that even our most is that why you took the job? Readers, it's like I really want to make sure to I read the whole New Yorker every week. <laughs> it's, it's a good deal. It, I know that you're gonna, you know, you're gonna see something. I'm, no, I'm, I, I watch people on the subway reading it. I see. I say, oh, I'm gonna pass on that. And then they go right into this. Yeah. Everybody reads it each in their own way. Yeah. I get that. No one. By the way, same thing with the New York Times. Does everybody read the New York Times every day? No. I always aspire no. to it. No, yeah, you, you can, flip. Nobody does. To it. Joe Lelyveld, one of the former editors of the, oh, yeah. of, of the New York Times, used to take a day off every six months. Yeah. And he would read the whole paper. But he needed the whole day. <laughs> he needed the whole day. See, I just assumed that, that people that meant business were reading the whole thing. No. no I know. It was stupid. But I no. need something to beat the shit no. out of myself about. <laughs> you need like, more? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? That guy's reading the whole New Yorker. I know he does every week, that yeah. guy. But, okay, so leading up to this gig. I'm letting you off the hook. You are? Yeah. Thank just, you very much. No, no problem. Well, thank God for the phone. Like, you, you know, <laughs> okay, I, read, I read it bits and pieces. Exactly. But I did just, you know, recently, outside of knowing I was going to talk to you, I resubscribed recently. I'll tell you that. Well, here's what I like about, one of the many things I show like about WTF is every time you have an author on, you make sure to tell him or her, you know, I'm not finished with your book. <laughs> Every single one. I'm about 40 pages in. I have a problem. <laughs> exactly. And Al Franken says, yeah, the, the, the good stuff is on the right, last page. Right, right. It's on said, the last page. Do you page. solve all the world's problems? Yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's on the last page. <laughs> I just interviewed him again. For, you know, for, I moderated him at, uh, at Book Expo. And I was, the first thing I said to him was, I finished the book. I finished. It took you long enough. Well, I, I have it a took weird, you weeks. I have a weird thing with the last thirty pages of anything. I don't. I don't. I don't know if it's if I don't want it to end. You or worried I don't he to... was going to be dead or something? No, but it just uh, you know it's like it's a sad thing when something ends. <laughs> and, and very, very few things end satisfactorily. Have you told your therapist about that? No, I, I'm not, I haven't seen him in a few weeks. You want to want to bring this up? Yeah. Well, I mean, what do you mean? I can read you know, Ernest he, Becker and know that it doesn't end well for anybody. Here's what happens in therapy. At one huh? point, the therapist says. I think our time is about up. Yes. Yes. See? See? And that's very sad because you had another funny story to tell. Right. Sometimes. Sometimes I got nothing to say and I'm holding back. <laughs> and if I want the guy to keep working, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep that secret for another three weeks. Let, <laughs> let him chip away. <laughs> give that's me your job. Give me your best, baby. Yeah, exactly. I don't trust you yet. <laughs> but, but how do you get the chops? I mean, you, you, know, you, you interview poets, you play guitar in France. So at some point you had to get the chops to do what you do now. I, look, any schmuck can play guitar in the streets of France. You just need a guitar. I know. I'm talking about journalism. Ah, that's a different thing. I, I've been at that for a pretty long time. And you 
I, look, I was a sports writer for two years. I must have written. Are you a sports fan? Eh, I yeah, certainly sure. told them I was when they offered me the job. I mean, I, I, as I get older, I eliminate one sport every so often. I'm pre- pretty much down to the NBA now. I just uh-huh. don't, I, how many baseball games can I watch? But do you pay attention though? You were a sports oh, yeah, fan yeah, yeah, as a kid, yeah, so yeah, it wasn't yeah, sure, completely sure. alien landscape. But, but, yeah. but the thing, the kind of jobs I had when I was a young reporter, I got out of school and I got a job at the Washington Post eventually, and I wrote every day. I was in the paper every day in Moscow. For, I was in Moscow for four years between 1988 and 19, at the end of 91, and I wrote probably twice a day. So that means reporting sto- whole stories and then writing them. And, you're, you know, your muscles get Of course, bigger. right. Yeah, of course. Well, I, I mean, what, can, what drove you or to Moscow? Or at least Moscow? you get fast. Did they just offer you the gig or you wanted to be there? Because it seemed like you had some predisposition to fascination so as I to- with so Russia. So as I told you, I was a, I was a lousy college right. Russian student. But you so chose th- Russia. So therefore, I had to make my living at it. Yeah. And – in 1987, um, just as I was beginning a relationship with the woman whom I married, Esther Fine, uh, we were both living in Washington at the time, and a job opening came up in Moscow, and a Gorbachev was in office. This was a terrifically exciting thing, and I think two or three people applied for it. it would, almost nobody. And, it was, and it, the idea was to open a second have a second person in Moscow, as if this was a lot. I mean, there's 10 time zones worth of, uh, yeah. uh, of uh, expanse in Russia. And the Soviet Union was still very much alive. And I got the job because they think, well, you know, he's a, he's a good feature writer and he'll supplement well the more serious news guy. And I started studying Russian again, this time with a little bit more um, purpose. At, at purpose and attention. Mm-hmm. And my wife did too, and we went to Middlebury and did that kind of thing where you don't speak English all summer and take intensive Russian. And then we show up, just married, very young, late 20s. And it was fantastic. It was unbelievable. It was a revolution that was happening with a minimal number of people getting killed. You know, I would never say going, you know, people talk about covering war and, and it's incredibly important, but it's also incredibly dangerous and your, your colleagues or, or you're losing colleagues yeah. and all the rest. That wasn't the case in Moscow. And this was when I mean, Gorbachev was, came in? Gorbachev came in in 85. We got there at the very, very beginning of 1988. And what was the revolution that was happening? The Communist Party was more or less going out of business, putting itself out of business. Gorbachev was opening the country up to... Um, ending censorship of the policy then called glasnost. Uh, dissidents were, were, were being given political power. Uh, democratic or at least semi-democratic political institutions were starting up after decades and decades of dictatorship. Enormous sense of promise. Enormous sense of optimism that's, I, I hate to say, now in the era of Putin, uh, almost unthinkable. Was it, so... Uh, that must have been an exciting and, and almost hopeful time to be writing. It there. wasn't an almost hopeful. It was an incredibly hopeful time. The, just the idea that the Soviet Union would end as an empire and that these individual countries would potentially become uh, kind so of autonomous. Much, not only autonomous, but freer, yeah. if not free, yeah. uh, was amazing. Now, the results. Now, 25 years later, are at at the very best a mixed bag, a yeah. really mixed bag. Um, we look at Russia, Ukraine, Central Asia is probably worse off now than it was when when I was there. 
Um, was Putin so, a reaction to to Gorbachev? I mean, was that is that is, can you frame that along the lines of Trump's success here? Well, there was something in between. There was Gorbachev Yeltsin, who gave, was gave it, way to Yeltsin, Yeltsin, right? And Yeltsin appointed Putin as his successor, even though Putin has proved to be in many ways uh, Yeltsin's opposite. Mm-hmm. I think what Putin is is a uh, first of all, he's an authoritarian. He's, uh, he's born and bred in the what used to be called the KGB, yeah. now called the FSB. But he is a he represents a yearning for stability. But along with that stability has come um, uh, an end to politics. There is no politics in Russia as we understand it. Um, it, it is a a reaction against the what seemed to be to so many Russians a chaos of the nineties. Putin is against chaos. He's against revolution. This coming fall will be the 100th anniversary of the October Revolution. You can be sure there'll be no kind words said about it in the official press. Because what Putin fears most, to get all serious on you, what Putin fears most is to be toppled. That's why he hated the so-called Orange Revolution in Ukraine, why he hated the Arab Spring. He relates to autocrats who are suddenly overturned by their people. So he's doing everything he can. And he thinks, and he thought Hillary Clinton represented a threat to him in that way. That's why he hated her so much. He, he did not, I don't think, to the extent that the Russians got involved in our electoral processes, it wasn't to elect Donald Trump so much as it was to destabilize the person they thought was going to win, which was Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I get that. It, what's interesting about what you just said, though, is that there was this a, a large contingent of Russians that could not quite frame or handle uh, freedom to the degree that may have well, been because there were, look, there was in, in fairness, there was an economic mess, a right. depression, and and at the same time, you saw a a new phenomenon in Russian life that didn't didn't exist in the Soviet times. There really wasn't wealthy people in yeah. the Soviet Union. There were right. people who were privileged. There were people who had some money, but but they the were usually part, with the party, right? Well, there, you, you, yes. And you, usually the, what existed was something called uranilovka, meaning a, a kind of um, equality in poverty. Mm-hmm. Everybody was equally lower middle class. Right. And then suddenly there were these staring you in the face, especially in cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, wildly wealthy, usually crazily corrupt new Russians. Yeah. And then here you were. Not only couldn't you afford the Prada handbag that was now staring at you from a from a window, but you were having a hard time making a go as a go of it. It, it, it. So what Putin was trying to hold out was the opportunity to become middle class. But what middle class people want in these circumstances when they achieve it is political liberty. And so there were demonstrations in 2011, 2012, that were uprisings against the Putin regime. And Putin put a quick end to that. Well, it just sounds like the the craving for 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 that kind of uh, justice or 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 at least to have some economic traction in culture is is sort of what compelled people to put this guy in office that we have now. Well, look, I the reason Donald I mean Donald Trump. Yeah. The reason Donald Trump is in office is a whole complex of reasons, and history may even look back on it and say this was a freak, that the, a whole series of 
in my mind, terrible circumstances conspire to cause it. Yeah, and you're, I think and you're, I think we can understand. We can empathize with people who are Trump voters who, sure. who are suffering, but I, we don't have to agree with them. I, I, so there, there are those. There's also the racial component to it. There's right. the misogynistic component to it. There's potentially uh, interference in our electoral processes. There's the Comey letter. There's the whole list that we all know. You, you're doing a very good job at wrangling it in your writing. I'll tell you that. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, there's you've done a few pieces uh, about the presidency, and, and each one of them, even though they're months apart, have this amazing range to them because there's so much coming at us at all times. Well, thank you. I mean, I think it's important, though, it, to not just indulge in endless woe is me. And, you know, in the early days of the Trump camp, it was hair jokes. And it was, um, you know, how long his tie is and speculation about his hands, et cetera, et cetera. I, fine. I get it. Sure. I get easy. it. I, I, yeah. Jokes. And I, I, you know, all my hats off to uh, Alec Baldwin and everybody else. But... But this this is this is an emergency. Yeah. The way I think of this is a, is a political emergency. Yeah. I I am not a conservative, but I understand that this is a divided country and that there are going to be conservative leaderships and liberal leaderships and Democratic and Republican. This is different. Yeah. This is different. We are being ruled by someone who doesn't believe in fact, in science, who has no preparation for this job, whose businesses were off, often scams. And we're going to learn more and more about this as time goes by. Who doesn't give a damn about human rights? Who doesn't give a damn about whole sectors of our society? Who just yanked us out of a, a, an, an essential climate change uh, agreement simply to pay off the base? Yeah, and despite his predecessor. And in the same week, within the same week, he did an unprecedented amount to undermine the the treaty, NATO, that has kept peace more or less on the European continent since the worst conflagration in human history, the Second World War. How much damage can one man do? It's kind of astounding. This isn't a matter of jokes. Yeah. And, and he's going to press in the Supreme Court and hope for the best that he can get his Muslim ban through and onward from there. And people who think that this is going to be easily... Uh, eradicated by uh, impeachment or resignation or some early end to what has been an agonizing several months, I think have another thing coming to them. And so as a result, people have to think clearly. Um, they have to think about what it is they didn't do before, what they can do now. I'm not a political organizer. But God knows I'm a journalist. But I, I just on the standards of rescuing the values of truth, the values of fact, of science, of reasonable argument, to say nothing of decency between men and women. Um, that's what's at stake. Yeah. And when you are putting together a magazine on an editorial level that, you know, you understand the seriousness of it and, and that we are in an emergency, but you have to put together a well-rounded uh, magazine that has humor, that has mm -hmm. cultural criticism, that has fiction, poetry, uh, entertainment. I think it's possible that our greatest humorist when it comes to these last 20 years and never more so than in the, in the Trump era has been Barry Blitt. Barry Blitt is an artist who does our covers mm -hmm. and he's a kind of 
genius of juxtaposition. He's able to take two elements that are in the air at the same time, join them together, yeah. and make comedy out of them and satire out of them. And he's done this with Trump over and over again. I remember in, in one week there was a senator who had been caught trying to seduce some other guy in a bathroom stall. And in the same week, Ahmadinejad of Iran had declared that there, there are no uh, gay men or, or lesbians in Iran. And so what did Barry do? He drew a cartoon of Ahmadinejad in the, in the can, yeah. reading a newspaper while someone's foot was trying to seduce sure. him yeah. from underneath. It's just these, these images. And, and, you know, occasionally he gets in trouble, too. And we all, but, you know, it's... Um, in trouble th- that by happens, the, uh, That happens to the public comic. opinion? Yeah. You know, we had, I don't know how many covers making fun of Bush right. over and over yeah. and over again. And then there came a period of time where the campaign in 2007, 2008, that we recognized that any number of people believed that Barack Obama had been born in Kenya, the birtherism preceded Trump, that he was a Muslim, as if there's anything wrong with that, that he was not patriotic, that his wife was, you know, some, you know, kind of some uh, an armed member of a radical group with a you know machine gun or something and so Barry put all those images together in one cover with an american flag burning in the oval office uh fireplace and people went crazy people went were really angry because our readers who probably tend more to the obama camp than the bush camp i think it's fair to say thought okay i get the joke and, the t- and the, by the way the title of the of the cover in case anybody didn't get it, it was called The Politics of Fear. And I got letter after letter after letter saying, of course I get it, but those people out there, meaning those rubes in the square states, mm-hmm. very condescending, sure. won't get it and they'll use it as an emblem for you know, racism or mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I think they were wrong. But this happens, you know, comedians who have to dare to go too far. So Barry will send rough drafts Ideas. Like this week, for example, I said, Barry, you know, Comey is going to testify. Um, FBI Director Comey is going to testify on Thursday. We need a, we need a uh, cover for Friday. I know it's a tall order. But do you have anything in mind, any sketches? And I guarantee you by Wednesday, Thursday, he will send seven, eight, nine sketches. And two or three of them, and it happens every time, are crazily too far. Oh, yeah. Crazily too far, you know, obscene in some way or right. whatever. Right. And so I'm in the old man position of saying, no, you know, too, yeah. mu- too much, yeah. too much. But I think he enjoys that because he, he wants to see where the limits are. And he trusts me that I'm not such a wimp that I'm going to tamp him down. Sure. But, but that maybe I'll save him from something so incend- gratuitously incendiary that, that, that it's a mistake. Well, ultimately, who gets the flack? You. Right? Uh, Barry, Barry feels it too. Yeah. Barry feels it too. And, and that's okay. Have you ever made any editorial decisions that you regret? Uh, individually, yes. Like what? Well, I think in the run-up to the Iraq war, A, we should have, like, any, like everybody else, we should have our investigative um, pressure on the argument about Weapons of mass destruction wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, you know, independent of my own position, you know, opinions about it and, and so on is what you can argue. So you bought it. Did I buy Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when Colin Powell went to the UN, that performance was, unfortunately, temporarily impressive. 
I mean, I, I hate saying it now. Obviously, it was bullshit. Right. Obviously, history tells us this was bullshit, and I'm very proud of a lot of the reporting that we did uh, during the Iraq War. But, yeah, I mean, I, yes. And it seems to me now— and I, and I think we paid—I think the Iraq War, we've paid a price for it not only in Iraq— um, but over and over and over again, you take something like Syria. It's very obvious why Barack Obama did, wanted no part of Syria because of Iraq. Because you wanted, of Iraq, you, you wanted it to happen again. Yes, or destabilize the region even more. Yeah, I'm not suggesting for a second that there was a a military answer to this horrendous disaster. But I don't think you can count any any American uh, policy as a success in Syria because look at, look at the outcome. Yeah. The outcome is 500,000 people are dead. Millions of people are dispersed. The migration out of Syria has helped to destabilize political understandings throughout Europe, ISIS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying Obama should have done X as opposed to Y. I'm just saying that on no score can we count our any policy – having to do with Syria as a raving success. Syria, just, Afghanistan, you just don't, you just Iraq. Afghanistan is different but, but yeah. than, than Iraq. But I mean but, like, like in terms of success. And it's forced a lot of people to become isolationist in their reflexes, which I'm not so sure is a great thing at all. Yeah, well, it, it, it's clearly not because so much of it is based on uh, limited information and paralyzing fear. Well, you know, there are a lot of people who feel that um, – that isolationism as such is the right way to go. The truth is, is that, you know, that American power has done good at times. The question is when and how, and it's, it's not completely known at any given moment. I, I, I would bet that there are a lot of Rwandans who would have hoped that either France or the United States had been able to intervene on behalf, during that uh, the slaughter the, that horrendous the, yeah. horrendous slaughter yeah so in in terms of reporting in terms of the New Yorker being you know very sort of known and proud of its its fact checking what what has changed since even you know since that the you know the misinformation that we got even from Powell I mean how well it, remember the the no it, no no publication is itself an intelligence agency. Yeah, well, that's they're, what I they're, mean. They're very different. And so fact-checking, it can help you a lot and save you from a lot, but it can't do everything. It can't do everything. Um, well, maybe I should be more specific. How has reporting changed now that the, the information technology and the pace of, uh, of news? Like, it seems to me that journalists have really stepped up here. That, you, you know, they I, are, th I think that's the case. And I think I think... I think the, Jeff Bezos is re-energizing the um, Washington Post led by Martin Barron, the New York Times, the New Yorker, NPR, uh, any number of institutions that were being uh, dismissed as the, what, what did Sarah Palin call it, the lamestream media or even more, more commonly the mainstream media. I think they've stepped up. If Congress were to step up as much as some of those media institutions – Right. They're they filling a better, void of, for the check and balance. I would say this. They're doing their jobs. Right. They're doing their jobs. A lot of them. I think the, I think the job of the media has, can, can be a lot of things. It can be entertainment. It can be emotional. It can be all kinds of things. But above all, 
above all, the top one, the highest priority, the singular one is pressure on power. Pressure on power, mm-hmm. any kind of power, liberal power, conservative right, power, whatever right, it is, right. Democratic, Republican, pressure on that. Yeah. Pressure on bullshit. Yeah. Pressure on lies. Um, pressure on concealment. That's an incredibly important civic um, uh, duty. And when we fall down on the job, and historically we've had moments where we've fallen down on the job, the New York Times you know, missed a small story called The Holocaust. There are whole books about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the best newspaper we have. That's the best we've got. It's a very difficult thing to do perfectly all the time. Sure. But the principle has to be intellectually and in terms of how you deploy your people and resources and all the rest, pressure on power. The interesting thing is this is happening right at a moment when a lot of these institutions are having difficulty, financial difficulty. You know, the Internet... Was, is all well and good, but it also created some unintentional consequences for places like the Times or the Post or a- anybody. You know, no media company now, none, no television, no cable television, no uh, movies, your business, none of them are stable. None of them are sitting back fat and happy. Not yeah. for long. Right. Not for long. They all have to think about my job as a, somebody who's also running a business, right. is to get the New Yorker from where I, where I, I, what I inherited in 1998, which is a terrific magazine, in print, to at some point in the future, when I'm gone, something that is a healthy enterprise online, on the radio, podcasts, in print, wherever, but with our souls and with our soul intact, with our sense of purpose still there with our depth and accuracy and all the rest. If I cheat it just to get an economic result and start undermining the principles of the magazine and what we're, what we're all about, then I've sold us out. Right. And I won't, I won't do that. And I, and I, and I know my colleagues won't. Well, it seems like you have, you have a, and it's you, a sense of idealism. I'm not embarrassed about it. Yeah. I don't know where you have time to play guitar. I mean, you're writing. <laughs> That's why I'm such a bad, bad, bad musician. <laughs> you're writing, you're managing a, the, the entire future. Maybe, maybe, if I didn't, maybe if I didn't care that much about it or, or, or didn't have a family or whatever it was, maybe I'd be, you know, Eric Clapton, but I somehow doubt it. I think you're doing a, probably a, 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 bit, a bigger good than, than Eric is at this point. Eric's pretty damn good. He's a great he guitar a, player, but uh, like you said, you know, we are in an emergency. And, and I guess the one thing that I keep you know, coming up against in, in my own brain and, is, and I think a lot of people are, and I'm curious about your opinion on it, is that, you know, is, is this constant uh, – a barrage of lies and 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 sort of constant information that is you know horrendous and destructive coming out of this administration. Uh, you, you know, is it incompetence or is it a plan to destabilize the very sense of of truth and reality that some people still have? It's nothing new to Donald Trump, right? When Donald Trump was opening Trump Tower, a 58-story building. He called in his architect and said, look, we're going to go in and we're going to have a press conference. Just remember, give him the old Trump bullshit. Right. Tell him it's 68 stories. In other words, Trump's been doing this for a lifetime. He is a creature of the New York 
real estate world, the kind of the shadier side of it. He's a, and at the same time, a kind of show business P.T. Barnum figure. He's I get a, it. He's a, you know, there's a, there's a philosopher named Harry Frankfurt. You know this name? Mm-hmm. Harry Frankfurt was an expert in Hume, Descartes, all kinds of complicated problems of philosophy. He was at Princeton. He was at Harvard. He was a very distinguished philosopher. Mm-hmm. And then he comes along some years ago and he wrote a little book. It's called On Bullshit. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. On Bullshit. And he said, you know, liars at least have some sense of what the truth is, and then they try to betray the truth. Bullshit artists don't care. Right. Bullshit artists is no line between truth and its opposite. That's what Donald Trump is. He, at any given moment, he's willing to say anything. I was for this. I'm against this. To save his own ass, usually. Or to sell something. Yeah. Or to sell, above all, to sell himself, right. to inflate his own sense of importance, yeah. to win over the, the other person, for, whether for business purposes or personal purposes or sexual purposes or whatever. He's a bullshit artist. Yeah, he's very good at it. He's fantastic at it. And for a period of time, we were mesmerized by it. CNN showed one rally after another without... An, anywhere near enough analysis or editing or sense of what the hell this all meant. And there were reasons why this mesmerized us, and he did the unthinkable. He, he won? He won. He won. He, and with all the explanations and the popular vote versus the electoral vote, blah, 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 he won. By the rules of the game, he won. And he's uniquely American. Oh, my God. And that's the interesting thing is that America loves bullshit. Well, look, <laughs> it's George Carlin, right? It's like something out of a George yeah, Car- George sure. Carlin is, is was the master of the of, of explaining this, right? Yeah. He said, you know, it, you know, he lives at the, at the intersection, uh, uh, like the the corner of Bullshit Avenue and Bullshit Street. Yeah, that's where he sits, and we're paying the price, and it's not funny. It's not just a show on MSNBC or CNN it's terrifying. Or, or Saturday Night Live or, or WTF or The New York or whatever it is. It has world historical consequences and not all of them are you going to be able to put back in the bag. What's going to happen when the inevitable happens? All it takes is some, some crazy person walking into a store or whatever, a subway station. How are we going to react? Are we, are we going to react with... with, with, with probity and intelligence and all the kind of poise that we need in situations like that? Or are we going to be led by somebody who's capable of gales of bullshit? And and, violence. And, well, and has the instruments of violence on his side and the use of social media in the most perverse way. So, look, I don't mean to scare people, but I don't think people... Uh, are at all fooled. I think that people understand the stakes. Well, you put it very poetically in one of your pieces, a new hell every day. It's pretty bad. If Dorothy Parker used to, used to say, what, what fresh hell is this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what it feels like turning on the news. The fact is the Democratic Party has a ways to go. I, you know, I did this interview with Obama the day after he saw Trump in the White House. And he did a pretty good job of masking the fact of how down he was mm-hmm. because, well, we, it's obvious why he would have been. 
But at one point in the interview, I said, so what does the Democratic Party have? What's, what's the bench? Who's going to, essentially, who's going to beat this guy next time out? And he did one of those Obamian pauses. He said, well, well, uh, we've got uh, Kamala Harris, senator from California, who at that point had been a senator for zero seconds. Mm-hmm. And then he paused and he said, no, there's that guy who was the, uh, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Couldn't remember his name. Remembered that he was gay and that he was a Rhodes Scholar. Couldn't remember his name. And then he named Elizabeth Warren, if I remember correctly, and Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. In other words, it wasn't as if there's this rich bench of top-flight Democrats waiting to go. Yeah. And that is um, – that's of some concern, I'm sure, to the Democratic Party. But how do you – as a journalist and as somebody who does the, the work that you do, the, the, you know, I, what's daunting is that there's a pride in ignorance – there's a, a yeah, I don't think look a hostility towards in, in Trump intelligence people, but Trump and people who 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 respect him, that th- this idea of intellectual elitism that there is actually a a contempt. I think and, it, look, I, I I think we shouldn't we shouldn't get obnoxious about it and and assume that everybody who voted for Donald Trump no, is, I'm not, is, but is, like, is anti-intellectual or racist or this, that, or the other thing. I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are on that. Does this phenomenon exist? Both of those phenomena exist. Right. There's no question. I think that it's the job of all of us to do our part, even though we may disagree on any number of issues, and to do it in, uh, truthfully and decently whether it's as a demonstrator, as a journalist, as a broadcaster, as a comedian, as a citizen. Look, we live in a country, you know, what, half the people vote? Yeah. What a shonda that is. Yeah. What a, what a shame, what a crime that is. And that was the only reason Obama did my podcast was really to— To get to, people to vote. Yeah, to get people engaged in politics, to get involved. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. It's fantastic. It's fantastic when there's a big— demonstration like the, the women's demonstration after the day after the inauguration. It was incredibly moving. Uh, my wife went in, in to Washington. I, I, I'd never seen her more energized, more moved um, to this day. But, you know, the simple act of voting, the simple act of participating, however corny it may seem, however limited it may be, um, it's certainly not the whole picture, but if we've learned anything, if we've learned anything in the last six months, it's that elections have deep, deep consequences. And you should just take the hour, drive over to the place. It's ridiculous. And do it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, and, and you know, getting people to vote always sounds like, you know, the most Boy Scouty, Girl Scouty sort of endeavor, but... You know, <laughs> Think of what we've sacrificed to be in a position to make those choices and think of what we've now sacrificed, not least because we didn't take it – we didn't all take it seriously. Exactly. Well, before we finish, I do want to thank you for the nice piece you wrote about Chuck Berry. I love – you know, Chuck Berry, I don't know who – What a great piece. I don't know who the grandfather or grandmother of of, uh, rock and roll is and maybe Rocket – 88 was the first song, but Chuck Berry is an originator. And this year, um, a friend of mine brought me the most moving present I've ever, I think I've ever got. Really? I mean, it was at Seder, in fact. And yeah. a friend of my wife's friend of Esther's 
brought this. I thought she was giving us a photograph. I thought, how wonderful. Uh-huh. And I opened it up, and she had gone on eBay, and Chuck Berry had taken the pick guard off of one of his guitars and signed it, and I have a framed Chuck Berry pick guard. Oh, that's great. What more could one ask for? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you really put him into a, a, a beautiful context. He was a difficult guy. He, he was an impossible guy, and his behavior with women was um, not great, to say the least, to say the least. But um, as a musician and as a figure in, in the culture of this uh, crazy country, he couldn't be um, more important. Well, it was great talking to you, David. Great to see you. You feel all right about it? I'm good. Me too. I'm good. Good. Thanks. Okay, that was it. Go go, go do something culturally enriching for yourself. Come on. Go out there and blow your mind. Gosh, I play guitar because like, I'm tired and I uh, my ears are a little fucked up. And, uh, I don't... I'll do it next week. All right? I'll work on some stuff. All right? Okay. Okay. All right. Boomer lives!